people, they, they've certainly um, experienced hardships because they are followers of Jesus. And, and so James writes, again, not as like a theologian, but as like a pastor who's pastorally caring for his people. And he says, count it all joy. Like, like I'm, a, I'm a pastor, and, and that's not what I would say. You know, like, like when, when, when I get to get coffee with somebody or when I'm sitting down with a, with a friend or somebody who's um, uh, in, in my church or under my care kind of a thing, like what, what normally happens is they'll start saying a lot of the things that there's going on in their lives, the hard things, the struggles that they have and stuff like that. And my temptation is to be like, man, you know, I'm like really, really sorry. And that's not terrible, but that's kind of my first instinct. Or, or maybe actually, you know what, I, I, you know, I promise you better days are coming. I promise you that this kind of hardship is going to, to pass and you're going to, you're going to come out on the other side of it. I promise that. Neither one of those are not true. Those are, those are fine, but that's not what James says here. What he says is, is kind of surprising. He says, count it all joy. He says, rejoice when you face trials and hardships of various kinds. What? Like, what are you talking about, James? Like, in what world does it make sense for when hard things in life come at you, for you to be joyful about that? In what world does that make sense? And, and here's the thing. If, if we have no hope in Christ, and if it's just hardships that hit us in life, then it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense for someone who is not a follower of Jesus to rejoice or to have joy when they are met with life's painful moments. It doesn't make sense for them at all. But James knows the truth that we serve a good God who actually his main goal for us is for us to become more like Jesus. Another way of putting that is for you to become um, whole or for you to become uh, 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 um, um, uh, like complete or perfect. Check out, check out what he says in this, in this first paragraph here. Uh, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And, uh, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Here it is. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's God's goal for you in life. That's actually like the purpose for you, your existence. The number one thing that, that you are here for, the number one thing that God wants for you is for you to become whole, to become complete, to be made perfect. In other words, to be made to be like Jesus. As Romans 8 says, you were predestined. God, his, his intention for you from the beginning was for you to be conformed to the image of his son. God wants you to become who he created you to be, and that is to be like Jesus. And so, James says that God can actually use trials and hardships in life to actually accomplish that goal in you. It's not necessarily that these hard things and these painful moments and these trials um, are, are sent your way by God, but that he can, can and does use them to accomplish his number one goal for you in making you more whole, in making you complete, in making you perfect. And so if you're in a world, which we are, if you are in a world where the hardships of life, those painful moments, the trials that we face, 
can actually be redeemed and used to accomplish the one thing that you need to accomplish in life, then yes, you can be joyful about those things. And now here's, here's what James is not saying. James is not saying that you've got to meet every painful moment in life with a hearty yippee. Like you don't have to do that. You don't have to be like, all right, man, boyfriend broke up with me. Woo, praise God. You, know, you don't have to do that. It's just not, it's just not, that's not what he's saying. The Bible encourages grief. It encourages a healthy mourning. It even encourages you to lament, which, which lament is like the coolest thing in the world that the Bible would, would encourage us to do this because it's literally like being angry with God. It's like literally saying, like, God, like, I don't understand why you would let this happen to me. Like, I, I just don't get it, God. Like, why are you letting this happen? I don't agree with this, God. That's lament. And the Bible actually says, like, you should do that because it's in your heart and God knows and he wants you to talk it out. So he encourages you to mourn. He encourages you to, to grieve. God encourages you to lament. But what James means here by count it all joy is that, and I love this. This is actually what, what Emily um, said uh, this morning. She said that true lament or true mourning or true grief will actually lead you to a place of praise. That when, when you get, um, you, when these moments come to you and you end up going through these trials, you can grieve, you should grieve, you should mourn, you, sh- you should take the hardship and for what it is. It's, it's hard and it is painful. But then you get to watch. This is the privilege of the follower of Jesus. You get to watch God use that hardship as long as you're keeping your eyes on this fact that God promises to make you whole. You get to watch God through that hardship. You get to watch the process of him actually molding you into the image of his son. And so you can come out on the other side of that hardship, however long it lasts, knowing and trusting that God has used it ultimately for your good. Doesn't mean it wasn't hard, but it does mean that God is accomplishing what he's still, God is still accomplishing what he wants to do. And so we can rejoice in our trials and in our hardships because we serve a good God who promises to make us complete, who promises to make us whole. And the key is to recognize that that is what he is doing when we experience life's hardships. Now, this is really cool. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on, on this particular section because I think it's really applicable for us um, uh, today, right now. In James's time, it was extremely applicable because many of his readers would have had friends, or even maybe they were thinking about it, um, would have had friends. They would have saw a lot of people leaving the faith because of these hardships, because of these trials. Like in the, in the first century, yes, the church boomed and it was growing, but also, as persecution moved in, as people started to, to, um, uh, to kill Christians and imprison Christians and ostracize Christians, there were many who committed what we would call, it's called apostasy. When you give up the faith, where they say, you know what, Jesus is not worth this. I'm not a follower of Jesus anymore. It costs too much. And, and so they decide, I'm going to leave the faith because of those hardships. Now, now, here's the deal. That's not just a first century thing. That's a 21st century thing. Every single one of my friends, 100% of them, who have deconstructed the faith or simply left the church and no longer identified themselves as a Christian, their journey to that started, 100% of them, with some sort of pain, with some sort of hurt. 
Yes, they may have thought about it intellectually. Yes, they may have um, been unconvinced about um, the, 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 the claims of Christianity and the doctrine and stuff like that. But that journey for all of them has started with hurt. I had, had a friend when in high school who was a follower of Jesus and, and he was growing really, really, really fast. He was a leader um, in our youth group and he was just, um, he was just killing it. I, I thought for sure he was gonna go into ministry. Not that that, you know, ministry equals mature Christian or, or uh, you know, other way around. Like that's not what I'm saying, but I thought he was going in the ministry and, uh, and then his dad died really, really unexpectedly. And, and I just kind of watched them just kind of ask the question, how could God even let that happen? And his process didn't go from lament to, to praise. He kind of just stuck there and said, how could God let that happen? And he didn't keep his eyes on the promises of God that he would mold him and that he would shape him into the image of his son. And I'm not blaming him. Who here could? Like, that's super understandable, right? Like, you get why someone would go there. But he went there and he stayed there and he's just no longer a follower of Jesus. That's reality. Um, I've got another friend who uh, uh, loved the church, loved uh, Christianity, um, but is now no longer a, a follower of Jesus simply because of uh, the mistreatment that um, she has received on, on the part of church leadership. That, that is constantly, it seems like for her, no matter what church she goes to, she's always let down. She's always um, uh, failed. Like, like, like the people who claim to be followers of Jesus, the claim to be on her side, to be in her corner, who want what's best for her, end up hurting her, end up harming her. And so she begins to think, you know, because pastors and church leaders and, and Christians in general are not trustworthy, God must not be trustworthy. And again, I, I'm not blaming her. Who could blame her? I, I totally understand why she would think that, given her experience. But, but she's, she's allowed the mourning and, and the grieving and the pain to, to, to overwhelm the truth of the promises of God that he wants ultimately to mold you and to shape you into who he created you to be. And so we get to have joy in our trials because we keep our eye on that truth that God is molding and God is shaping us. It's not easy, but it's the only way. It's the only way to keep going. It's the only way to endure. It's the only way that we can produce steadfastness, as James says. Keep going is what James says. Okay, so next, the next section, James is, is going to tell us to pray for wisdom. And, and you can see the connection here, right? If the ultimate goal of our lives is to be made whole or to be made complete, part of that is for us to become more wise, right? Um, this is especially true in Jewish thinking. Um, wisdom means something a little bit different in the Jewish mind that James would have um, than it does in, in, in our kind of world and the way we talk about um, wisdom. If you're familiar with your Bible, you might be familiar with what um, I'm talking about. Um, let, let's read what he says and then we'll kind of, we'll talk about it. So um, verse five, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable 
in his ways. So, so like I said, wisdom is kind of seen as this extremely valuable um, thing in the Jewish mind, and it's actually kind of synonymous with maturity in the Lord. So someone who has gained wisdom is someone who is gaining maturity in uh, the Lord. And so it's kind of why, like for us, it might seem kind of random that, that, that James is like, okay, like if the goal is for me to become more like Jesus or whatever, why is like the one thing that James is asking for right now is wisdom? It's because wisdom is not just like I'm wise because of life experience in the Bible, in the Jewish uh, frame of thinking, God actually created the world through his wisdom, and it's actually the means by which he's recreating you into who he created you to be, more like Jesus. Are you, are you with me? It's super valuable. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example of this in Proverbs. We told you James is really familiar with Proverbs, likes to quote it. Um, you're going to see some of the words he uses in here. Proverbs 2, he says, my son, that's Proverbs is, is the narrator of Proverbs is talking to his son. Um, and so he says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, you see the value, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So, so James says, hey, you need to ask God because you obviously lack something, right? There's nobody in this room who doesn't have some room for growth, right? None of us have been made complete. None of us have been made perfect. We are being made complete and we are being made perfect if we are in Christ. But we still got a long way to go, myself included. And so we need to ask God for wisdom. We need to ask God to do this in us and we ask in faith because of God has promised to give us all that we need to become who he created us to be. So we ask in faith. And James says, without doubting. You notice that word. James asks, don't doubt when you ask. If you doubt, you are double-minded or like a wave of the sea that is tossed back and forth by the wind. So Here's the thing, the, the, the part about doubting in this passage can be easily misunderstood um, because just the way we use the word doubt in, in English, um, what we usually mean by that is um, uh, doubting some sort of intellectual um, claim or, or truth. So you might doubt the fact that God exists, right? That's what, how we normally use um, the word doubt. Or if in this context you're praying for something, you might be praying for it, but you might also doubt that God can actually or will actually give it to you. Are you with me? That's kind of how we think of doubt. The word here in Greek that James uses is actually literally um, uh, what, it, what, it, what it describes is, is the picture of one uh, who is divided within himself, so, so you get why he says you're double-minded if you doubt. So for James, it's actually a division within oneself. And so it, it can be absolutely you're asking for God to give you wisdom and you doubt that he um, uh, uh, can do it or that he will do it. Um, but it also can be more of a division of, of, of allegiances. It may be that you are asking God for wisdom. It may be that you are asking God to do the things that you need him to do to make you into who he created you to be, and it's not that you don't think he can do it, it's that you actually, part of you, doesn't really want him to do it. Are you with me? 
So, so it's, James is saying not just that we, if you need to pray, if you're praying for something, that you need to, to have zero doubt, you need to have full faith, and then you're going to see that. He is saying that, but he's also saying that you need to be 100% devoted to what it is that you are praying for. So if you are praying for Jesus to make you more like himself, then it, you are a double-minded person or you are like a wave in the sea that is tossed to and fro by the wind. If you are asking Jesus for that, but at the same time, you really don't actually want that. You know, like, 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 like many of you, many of you, you, you have divided um, allegiances, if, you, if you're anything like me. If you're anything like me, you have um, divided allegiances. Maybe um, you say, God, I, I really want you to make me more like Jesus. I really want you to grow me um, spiritually, but I really also want to hang on to this addiction. Or, or yeah, God, I, I really want you to use me on my campus. I really want you to make disciples um, through me, but I also really, really want my comfort. That's the kind of double-mindedness, that's the kind of doubt that, that James is um, talking about. He says, so, so when you pray, knowing that God wants to make you more like Jesus, wants to make you more whole, wants to make you more complete, so ask for the things that you need. Ask for wisdom so that you might be made more complete. Make sure that you are fully devoted to the idea. Remember point two, God wants to make you more like Jesus, and this requires a full devotion, an undivided devotion to him. This is why in the next paragraph, he warns rich people, right? So let's read it. Um, he says in verse nine, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So you see, like, it, it, it's, he kind of creates this character of, of the rich man. And no doubt he's writing to some people who are rich. He's also writing to the people who are poor. But there are certainly people who are rich who are reading this letter. And, and if you are in this room right now attending a university, um, you are among some of the richest people in the world. I know it doesn't feel like that, but you are. And, and so we can, we can kind of relate to this. But the, the problem with the rich man is not just or, or not necessarily that he has money, but it's that he has made it a pursuit in life. You catch that in the kind of last sentence of that paragraph, James says that he's going to fade away um, in his pursuits. So it's not just that um, he has money, but it's that he has made money into a, a, a thing that is dividing his devotion to Jesus. So, and presumably, James is writing, this rich man is a follower of Jesus. Presumably, he is a Christian. And so he probably even says that he would put Jesus before all things. Like if he put a list out, if he got a notebook and he made a list of all his priorities in life, all the things that he's got going in his life and stuff, he made a list, he would put Jesus at the top of that list. The problem is, is that Jesus doesn't want to be on the top of your list. He wants to be the list. And every single other thing in life, if it doesn't serve the purpose that Jesus has for you, it needs to leave. It needs to be thrown out like the grass of the field. It needs to be done away with if it doesn't serve the purpose of G that Jesus has for you, namely making you more like himself. 
then it needs to be done away with. Otherwise, it will become a distraction that divides your devotion to Jesus. And you cannot become more like Jesus unless you have fully devoted yourself to him. Check out, some of you, if you're familiar with your Bible, um, you you might have caught hints of some things that Jesus um, says in this passage. We'll read this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, says this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about... Uh, about your body, um, what, you will, uh, <laughs> what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And, he would kinda, uh, uh, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, or the unbelievers, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all, excuse me, all these things will be added to you. So James is for sure thinking of that teaching when he writes this thing. I mean, you can see it, the same imagery, the same language. Like James is, is giving a commentary on, on what Jesus has already said. And what Jesus is saying is that the unbelievers chase after lesser things. Like the rich man in James's letter, he, he has allowed something lesser, something less valuable than the most important thing, something less valuable than what God has for him. And he's allowed it, not necessarily to, to take over, not necessarily to be his one and only God, but that he's put it somewhere in a place where it's now dividing his devotion to Jesus. And Jesus says that you cannot serve two masters. It's not possible. And, and, and here, here's the deal. It's not just about money. You know, like James talks about money. Jesus talks about money. Jesus talks about your basic needs in that passage. And, and I want to stop right there and say, for a whole heck of a lot of people, it is about money. And it will be about money for many of you when you get it. You shouldn't rule that out. But it's not just about money. Oftentimes, it can be just just about anything. For many of you, you you so desperately want to become a better follower of Jesus, so desperately want to be molded into the image of the Son, but you also really, really want that relationship. You also really, really want to hold on to that person. And, you know, maybe that person's not good for you. Maybe that person's not a follower of Jesus. There's no way that they are going to be able to serve that purpose that God has for you, to make you into who he created you to be. I'm going to go ahead and say that that, we're going to just rule that out for a second. Like, if you are trying to date someone who is not a follower of Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. That's just not a good idea. But, But let's say that they are. Let's say that they are a follower of Jesus. They'd even be a good catch. They'd be good for you. No matter who it is, you can always allow a relationship or even the idea or the desire for a relationship come to a place where it is not a good thing, 
but a thing that divides your devotion to Jesus. And it will stunt your growth as a follower of Jesus. For some of you, it might be plans for the future. It might be that, that you really, really want that job, that career. You really want to live in this kind of house. You really want that, that husband or that wife and this many kids. And you really want to live in that place of the, that part of the country or in that city or, or that kind of a neighborhood, whatever it is. You've got this plan for your life. And you're holding on to that plan so tightly. And you're saying, God, I really want to become more like Jesus. I really want you to do what you want to do in and through me but you are unwilling to give up this plan even if it's not God's plan for your life and it is dividing your devotion to Jesus. Maybe for some of you it's just simply safety, comfort, that you really want to see God move in your life, you really want to see God use you, but you are unwilling to, to enter into situations where you might even face trial or any kind of suffering. And you, what you're doing is you are robbing God of the opportunity that, that he wants uh, to, to, to mold and shape you into the image of Jesus because you won't step out in faith to what he is calling you to. I could go on and on with the different examples that might be represented in this room, myself included, on the things that we put in places where they're dividing our devotion to Jesus. But here's what I want you to know. We serve a God who promises to accomplish his will for us. No matter what, nothing can take us away. Nothing can separate us from God's plan to make us more like Jesus. We were predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. And the reason why I know that is because Jesus came to earth and was singularly focused on what God wanted from and for him. That, that he was the prime example of this fully devoted life. That he came, and, and the, the Gospels even say that he had set his face, he had set his eyes toward what God had for him. And so he lived the life that you and I cannot live. He lived it fully devoted to God, fully, no, no divided attention, no divided allegiances, fully pledged his allegiance to God and his will for his life. And, and he, he died the death that we deserve for dividing our devotions, for um, committing treason against the one true king. He died that death and he also rose from the dead. He was the first one to be whole, to be recreated, to be perfect, to be complete, to be restored. And so he, he is now on his throne at the right hand of the Father, restoring all things back to himself. And that starts with you and me. And he promises to do that. And the reason why I know he will accomplish it is because Jesus accomplished it. It's gonna happen. So fully devote yourself to God and what he wants to do in you. That last verse, in verse 12, James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I don't care what is dividing your devotion to Jesus. It is not more valuable than that promise right there. At the end of the day, your reward in heaven is worth everything that you will ever give up to be fully devoted to Jesus. And you will be restored to who God created you to be. Let's pray.
Father, you are really, really, really good. And, um, man, it is a privilege to follow you. It is a privilege to be counted as one of yours, to be, to be the subject of this process of becoming who you have created us to be, to be restored like all of creation is being restored back to you. Like that's a privilege, God. Oftentimes we just don't see its worth though. Oftentimes we, we, we see the things of this world, the things that may even be good things, but we allow them to divide our devotions to Jesus. And though we so desperately want to become who you created us to be, God, we, we lose our way. We are double-minded. We are tossed to and fro by the winds. We put everything we've got in things that will eventually be scorched by the sun. But Father, there is one thing that lasts. There's one thing that matters. There's one most valuable thing in life, and that is you. And so Father, help us to fully devote ourselves to you. Make us more like Jesus, God. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.